We're going through the book of Romans in this series called A Great God, Amazing Salvation. And for a few months now, we've been going through Paul's explanation of what the gospel really is. Now, why would we spend so much time on that? Because the Apostle Paul says the gospel is not some lame, weak message to be ashamed about. Rather, it's the power of God for salvation. It's what we need for the renewal of our life in this world. Paul says the gospel changes everything so that people like us would be melted into love and worship and gratitude, so much so that the only proper response to the gospel is to offer up our lives as a living sacrifice to God, holy, acceptable, and pleasing to Him. The gospel truth leads to gospel change. And now, Paul is starting to wrap up this masterful letter. And before he concludes, he ends by showing us that there is a pattern for life and ministry. And now to be exact, he's showing us, he's talking about his own ministry. And from his own life and ministry, we can extract a pattern that we can apply so that we can also have a gospel pattern in our life and ministry. So let me read that out for you. Here's Paul. I myself am convinced, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with knowledge and competent to instruct one another. Yet I have written you quite boldly on some points to remind you of them again, because the grace God gave me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. He gave me the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done, by the power of signs and wonders, through the power of the Spirit of God. So from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known, so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. This is why I have often been hindered from coming to you. But now that there is no more place for me to work in these regions, and since I have been longing for many years to visit you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to see you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there, after I have enjoyed your company for a while. Now, however, I am on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the Lord's people there. For Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the Lord's people in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed, they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share with them their material blessings. So after I have completed this task and made sure that they have received this contribution, I will go to Spain and visit you on the way. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the full measure of the blessing of Christ. I urge you, brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. Pray that I may be kept safe from the unbelievers in Judea 
and that the contribution I take to Jerusalem may be favorably received by the Lord's people there, so that I may come to you with joy by God's will, and in your company be refreshed. The God of peace be with you all. Amen. So that is Paul speaking to the Roman church, and he sort of outlines his ministry here, his past, present, and future ministry. So Paul here is arranging and ordering out his life and ministry. Now our question today is, well, what can we learn, what can we derive from that so that we can order our own life and ministry? Well, there's three things I think that we can learn from Paul's pattern here. He looks ahead, he looks around, and he looks above. Or if you like, looking ahead is plans, looking around is people, looking above is prayer. So you have plans, people, and prayer. Now, first of all, Paul looks ahead. And you can see here in these verses that Paul is talking about his ministry, right? And he's sort of laying out his ministry to invite the Roman church to partner with him in some future ministry out to Spain. So Paul here is writing the letter to the Romans to prepare them for his visit, to prepare them for that partnership that he is looking forward to. Paul is looking ahead into the future and he's already preparing and strategizing and making arrangements for his life and ministry. And throughout all the letters of Paul, you'll notice that this is a standard operating procedure in Paul. He plans, he prepares, he, he, he arranges things. And so should we in our own life and ministry. Now that may seem fairly obvious to maybe all of us, but I bring up this point because the fact is a lot of Christians do not look ahead and plan for spiritual things. Oh yes, we pray for spiritual things. We pray, we pray, but we don't do anything much. There's no action plans, there's no concrete goals, there's no strategy, no research, no systems to keep us accountable. Nothing. We just pray and that's it. And so what happens is year after year, prayer after prayer, we still remain clueless and unprepared and unchanged. We just waffle our way through our spiritual life and ministry. You know, there have been many times when someone told me, to pray for them, for, to, to pray with them for this spiritual thing. They've been praying maybe for a better marriage, praying maybe to find a partner in life, praying maybe for uh, sexual purity, praying maybe for fr a fruitful ministry so that their service to God would be effective and would be winsome, right? And so I say, great, sure, I'll pray with you. Tell me, what's your plan? How do you hope to achieve? What are the steps you need to take to work towards those prayers of yours? And the answer I often get is some vague idea, some abstract change and mysterious effort that they need to make. But these are the same people when I ask them, well, tell me about your investment plans, your travel plans, your weekly plans. And they tell me and they share it and it's also clear and well thought out. Can you imagine, what if we just put the same amount of effort of planning and organizing there into our spiritual things? Can you imagine how much further we would be in our spiritual life and ministry? Why don't we? Well, there are two common reasons that I often hear. 
and Paul points shows us that neither one of those reasons should stop us. The first reason is simple. We are lazy. We want good things, but we don't want the hard work. And so the lazy Christian way is to pray, but then do nothing. You just wait for God to give it for free. There's no action, no participation, no working out of those prayers, nothing. We just wait passively. But as important as prayer is, it's not enough. You can't just pray and then do nothing. The fact is, God has entrusted you with some intellect, resources, and energy, and that, with that comes a degree of responsibility. God expects you to use those gifts and, and, and use it not to hide it away, not to push back all the responsibility back to Him. That's just bad stewardship. That's why if you look at Paul, what does Paul do? Of course he prays. He's constantly praying. But then he gets busy. He gets busy. See, from verse 22 onwards, you'll see that Paul uh, lays out his plans, right? He says, first of all, he needs to go to Jerusalem to bring some aid. It's his ministry there. Then after Jerusalem, he, needs, he, he plans to go to Rome to visit them there so that they can help him on his ministry to Spain. See, Paul is already thinking three steps ahead, perhaps months or even years into the future, and already he's making arrangements for that third step. That's the whole reason why he's writing this letter to the Romans. It's to prepare them for that second and third step in his ministry. See, Paul is not just praying and then waiting passively and then we'll see whatever happens. No, no, no. Paul's not saying, Bahala Lord. No, Paul prays. But then from his prayers, he formulates a plan. He researches, he thinks, he strategizes, he prepares. Then he labors, he, he works, he strains himself towards those prayers. In fact, take note. That Paul is not doing all of this randomly. He's not just doing anything that comes to his mind. There's intention here. There is a clear defined goal and a strategy to achieve that goal. See, although Paul was a Jew, he says his main duty was not to the Jews, it's to the Gentiles. Although Paul was a brilliant genius, he says his main duty is not to write about theology, it's to preach the gospel where Christ was not known. See, he's, he has a very clear goal. Very clear goal. That's why he says, I've been wanting to go to Rome, but I couldn't because I needed to stick to my goals. I needed to stick to my plans and my prayers. See, Paul could have done so many other good things, right? He was an apostle. He could have done so many good things. But Paul does not just do whatever he wants. He's stuck to whatever was his plans and his prayers. See, it would have been so much easier, would it not, if he just waited for whatever good could be done at the moment, right? He could just wait and, and, and do whatever was in front of him. He could just do whatever was presented to him, to, him, to him at that moment. But Paul doesn't do that. Even though that would have been so much easier, he didn't need to plan or strategize or prepare, right? But Paul does not take that easy, lazy route. Paul 
crystallizes his prayers into goals. Then he sticks with it and he puts in the hard, disciplined work and labor that's needed to accomplish those prayers. That's why Paul comes up with a whole strategy to achieve those goals. He says, I have fully proclaimed the gospel in these regions. Now, what does that mean? Because historically, we know that Paul didn't go to every town and every house to proclaim the gospel. He didn't saturate the whole Mediterranean. No, no, no. But what we do know is that Paul went to the important cities and he planted strategic churches there that could effectively share the gospel widely in, the, in that region. So there was a strategy. And what he's saying here is, I have fully proclaimed, meaning I have fully accomplished my strategy to proclaim the gospel in these regions. He's saying, I've done the hard work of thinking up a strategy, of researching, of crafting and implementing this strategy, and I've completed it in these regions. It's time to move on to the next so that I can do my strategy and achieve my goals in a different region. See, there's nothing lazy. There's nothing drifting about Apostle Paul. He's not passive. He's always straining and planning and, and, and preparing things. There's intention and focus and discipline. He plans because Paul understands that as a steward of God's grace, that was what it meant to be a good, faithful servant. So he labors, he strains. And as we also, as servants of God, as stewards of his gifts and his grace, we also can follow that pattern. We pray, yes, of course we pray, but then out of those prayers, we formulate a plan, an action plan. We perhaps with goals, perhaps with strategies to keep us accountable to the grace that God has given us. We have to develop that spiritual work ethic that is only proper and necessary as recipients of God's grace. So there's no room for laziness. But then the second reason why people pray but don't plan is a bit more complex. There's a belief that if I plan out too much, then it leaves no room for faith. And the thinking behind that is, if I plan everything out, then I leave no room for God to work. And, and the belief there is, you know, planning is, is an attempt to control what I ought to surrender to God. And you see, for me, I look at that and I hear that and I, and I really... And I appreciate that, those good intentions, but there seems to be some confusion, some misunderstanding here. Because the Bible never teaches us that planning is against faith. They're not pitted against each other. In fact, oftentimes, planning and prayer coexist and strengthen and complement each other. For example, look at James 4, verse 13 to 16. James says, don't say, today or tomorrow I will go to this city and make money. Why? Why does James say, don't say that? Is it because planning is bad? No. James says, it's because you think you're completely certain. You think you're, you're in control of your life. You're not. That's foolish. That's ignorant. Instead, what should you do? What does James say? Does James say, don't plan, it's bad? No. 
Does James say, plan, but keep it vague? No. James says, plan, still plan, but say, have that attitude to say, if it is the Lord's will. In other words, you do make plans, but those plans, you don't hold it with a tight clenched fist, insisting that my will be done. No. You make plans, but you hold it with open arms, open hands. You give it to God. You offer it to God. It's now His. It's, what, what happens to those plans is entirely up to Him. Perhaps He may bless those plans. Perhaps He may change those plans. But it's His plans. What's important for us is to come up with the best plans that we can make and to order our lives in such a way so that we can offer up those plans in our lives to Him. It's an offering. Those plans are an offering to Him that we hope is wholly acceptable and pleasing to Him. See, Paul says, I glory in my service in Christ Jesus. I won't, I won't boast about anything except what God has done through me. What he's saying is though the success of my ministry and my life is not because of me. I prayed, yes, then I planned. Then I offered those plans to God. And then he was the one who blessed those plans, who, who powerfully worked through those plans. And therefore, I glory not in me and my tiny little plans. I glory in him who was able to use what I offered and multiplied it into these marvelous things, into these miraculous things. It's him. And so as we also, like Paul, receive God's grace, let us also order our lives by praying. But then from those prayers, you formulate an action plan. How do I work together with God to, 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 towards those prayers? How can I be a faithful steward? How can I be a faithful servant of God? So that we make plans and we implement it and we offer it to God who is able to multiply that into a billion marvelous things. And so we need to look ahead. But then also, Paul shows us that we need to be looking around, looking around to other people. See, I always find the Apostle Paul very, very interesting because he has this hyper-focus to keep on reaching outwards to non-believers, outside, outside, outside. But also, he's also constantly looking inside and he's trying to connect Christians together from different places, from different churches. He's connecting Christians together. And you can see it right here. He talks about making connections here. See, first of all, he talks about the churches of Macedonia and Achaia, and he wants to connect them to the needs of the Jerusalem church. That's one. Another, he's also making a connection between himself and the Roman church. That's, that's what this letter is all about, right? He's connecting with the Roman church. So he's making connections, always, always making connections. And notice that these kinds of connections that he's making, he's always pointing out that these connections are a mutual benefit to both. It's a two-way thing. There's a mutual blessing of each other. The, the churches in Macedonia and Achaia have material blessings that they can share to the, to the Jerusalem church who had lots of poor Christians. In the same way, the, the spiritual blessings that they received came from the Jews. 
See, it's a two-way thing. And also in the same way, Paul is saying that in a way, he wrote this letter as a spiritual blessing to the Roman church, right? This is a masterful letter. And, and also, Paul is now saying he also needs their material blessing to assist him on his ministry out to Spain later on, right? So even though he's the apostle, even though he's this brilliant guy, Paul says he still needs their help. Paul understood that this life, this ministry here, we absolutely need other people. We cannot do it by ourselves, no matter how good we are. We need other people to come in and bless our lives. See, if you're looking for good spiritual things in your life, you're looking for a better marriage, you're looking for a partner in life, you're looking for sexual purity, you're looking for an effective ministry, then guess what? You can't do it by yourself. You need to find help and blessings from other Christians, from your discipleship group, ask for help, look for their blessings. You, you, you need to be constantly immersed and deeply connected with other Christians. You need their blessings to come into your life. And so what you need to do is you need to find a group of Christians that you can trust so that you can be open and authentic and vulnerable to them. For how, how else can anyone help you, right? See, that's the only way we need to deeply connect with other believers because we do need the blessings that will come from them, but also to be able to share the blessings from us to them. It's a two-way thing, right? We also have some blessings that they also need. It's a mutual blessing. Now, that might be material blessings. That might be spiritual blessings. That might be some talents or skills that you have. It might just be a listening ear or the gift of friendship and companionship. Whatever that might be, you do have some blessings that the other person needs. It's a mutual blessing of each other. And this, by the way, is not some accident. It's the design of God. God gives blessings to all people. But no person gets all of God's blessings. That means you have some blessings that the other person needs, and the other person has blessings that you need as well. There's a mutual need, and so there should be a mutual blessing of each other. Paul goes so far as to say that this is something you owe the other person. It's a moral obligation. In fact, the language that Paul uses here implies that this is a koinonia, a Christian fellowship, a strong and thick web of relationships where blessings just freely flow from each other, freely and generously and willingly and with joy and peace because there's mutual blessing and love that's bonding them together. And see, in our own context, what does that mean? Think about it like this. There are older Christians among us who have that deep, calm waters of wisdom and experience that the younger Christians need. But also the younger people have the fires of energy and passion that the older people need, right? Now, it may mean that the richer people among us have connections and resources that the poor people need. But also the poor people have the perspective and the grit and the perseverance that the rich people need. 
And so as well, there may be Chinese and Filipino among us, but there are cultural viewpoints and practices that we need to learn and be blessed from one another. We all need each other. We all need each other. And if we ever hope to access a deeper life and ministry, then we need to do it together. And you see, one implication of that is that that means you and I have to be deeply connecting with Christians who are different from us, right? Because if I'm just always associating with Christians who look like me, who grew up like me, who have the same resources as me, who have the same background as me, then we have the same blessings. The kind of blessings that we need that we don't have will come from Christians who are different from us. And so we need to be deeply connecting with Christians of different ages, of different backgrounds, different ethnicities, of different, back, of different cultures, right? That's how we can form that thick interconnected web of koinonia, of brotherhood and sisterhood, of a body of Christ that is blessing each other freely and generously with love. You know, as a pastor, I'm always on the lookout to help other people, you know, especially spiritual needs. Literally, that's part of my job description. Now, that is actually both a good thing and a bad thing. It's a good thing because it keeps me focused on my calling. But it can actually be a bad thing if I'm not careful because I might fall into this spiritual disease that just gives and gives and gives but never receives and enjoys blessing from other people. And so I offer you this word of caution as well. If you're someone who just keeps on giving and giving and giving, and you've never really learned to receive blessing and help from other Christians, then at best, you're being foolish. At worst, you're being arrogant. You think you don't need it. But on the other hand, if you're someone who keeps on receiving and receiving, you're never really giving blessings to other people, then at best, perhaps you're just ignorant that God has indeed blessed you. At worst, you're being selfish. But see, in both cases, in both extremes, the problem is the same. You are not deeply connecting with other believers. Now, you may be surrounded by Christians all the time, yeah, but the way you relate with them maybe is you're hovering above them, right? You're just above them. You're just dropping blessing bombs on them. Or maybe you're below them. You're just waiting for dole outs, for gifts to come to you but you're never really beside them, side by side as a friend, as a brother and sister, as part of that koinonia of mutual love and blessing of each other. You're never really that. And sure, you can skip that whole step, you know, deeply connecting like that is always messy, it's always a hassle, it's difficult, yeah? You could skip that step, sure. You do your life in ministry and you could make it look in a way that is successful without really relying on other people. Many people have done that, and many people still do. But you do that, and you'll always know that your life and your ministry is paper thin. It's like a string that's about to break. Any failure, any misstep, and you'll break. Paul, the success, the fruitfulness, and the faithfulness of Paul is largely because he looked around 
and deeply connected with such a wide range and variety of Christians, and he immersed himself with them, blessing them and receiving blessings from them. And so also we need to look ahead and look around. And lastly, we also need actually to look above, we need to pray. It's not enough to have plans and people, we need prayers. Now, I've mentioned prayer a couple of times already, but let's just drive the point home here. See, Paul, at the last part of our passage today, he prays for two things. He prays for two things. He prays for his life, then he prays for his ministry. First of all, he prays for his life. He prays for personal safety. He prays that he may be kept safe, right? Now, obviously, we don't live in such a hostile society like that. There's no direct violent threats against us because of our faith, but we live in a different kind of society where the dangers are more seductive and indirect and subtle and hidden. Dangers like pornography and consumerism and greed, those are equal dangers, maybe not externally, but internally to our souls. They are danger. And so, just like Paul, we need to be aware and keep on praying for our life, that we may be kept safe. Okay? Kept safe, that uh, not just in our bodies, but even in our souls. Then notice the second thing that Paul prays for is that his ministry may be favorably received by the Lord's people. Now, you have to understand, Paul was not exactly celebrated in Jerusalem. Many Orthodox Jews actually saw Paul as a traitor to their faith. They hated him. And they hated him so much that many people were actually trying actively to kill Paul. And so, even though Paul was coming to Jerusalem, he was going to bring financial aid, even though that was the case, Paul was worried that, they, that the Christians there might not accept it. Because can you imagine the kind of pressure and, 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 and influence the surrounding Jewish community was putting on them? Because to receive Paul's aid was to basically endorse Paul, right? And so Paul prays that his ministry would be acceptable. It would, it would be effective in Jerusalem. And so should we, right? We should also be praying for our own ministry, not only praying for our life, but also praying for our ministry. That our ministry, whether that's being a life group, being an usher, being in the worship team, or whatever else kind of ministry that you have, you also pray that you would be acceptable. That even in this hostile world, in a world that does not readily embrace Christianity, we also need to be praying that our ministry would be accepted, that it would be favorably received, that it would be winsome and effective and productive, right? We pray for ourselves, we pray for the ministry of other people. Now, I would go even a step further, perhaps, and say that maybe some of us also need to pray that we ourselves learn to accept the ministry of other believers. See, in England, I think many families, during Sunday lunch, they would have roast pork. Incredible, delicious. The thing is, in many churches, perhaps even in our churches, many families, during Sunday lunch, they don't have roast pork, they have roast preacher. During Sunday lunch, they cut up the preacher, and they dissect his message, and they critique. See? 
Let's pray that we ourselves would learn to accept the ministry of other believers. And so Paul prays for these two things. He prays for his life and his ministry. He prays that his life would be kept safe. Let us pray that we also would be kept safe, especially our souls, that we might die faithful. But also let's pray for our ministries, that it would be acceptable and effective and winsome, that we might die fruitful. So we need to be looking above and praying that we might be faithful and fruitful in life and ministry. Now we could end there, but as a pastor, I, I want you to know some things about prayer. I want to give you a heads up about prayer. And that is that the kind of answers that God gives to prayers are always surprising, always not the way that we originally envisioned them to be. I mean, we don't have to go further than Paul. Just look at Paul. Look at his prayers. He prayed two things. Well, the, the one thing that he prayed for was that his ministry would be accepted. Did it? Was, it? was it successful? Well, honestly, we don't know. But the second prayer is that he would be kept safe. Now, this one we do know. We can look at the book of Acts and see how God answered that prayer. Now, you tell me whether God answered the prayer of Paul to be kept safe in Jerusalem. Because here's what happened. When Paul arrived in Jerusalem, he was arrested, he was tried, he was imprisoned. Does that sound safe? But as a prisoner, Paul was kept safe. He was protected from being lynched, from being flogged, and even from this attempted murder by over 40 men. So did God answer Paul's prayer? Yes, but in a very different way than we would imagine it. Now, no, Paul says that he would be kept safe so that what? So that he could go to Rome, so that he could visit the Roman church. Well, did Paul safely arrive at the Roman church, at the city of Rome? Well, again, you tell me if God answered his prayers. Because the fact is, Paul did arrive in Rome, but only three years later than his original plans. And he arrives at Rome only after a near-fatal shipwreck, which was immediately followed by a lethal snake bite. And then Paul finally arrives in Rome, but this time he arrives in, in chains as a prisoner. So did God answer Paul's prayer? Yeah. But not in a way that we envision it, right? I don't think Paul was envisioning this kind of answer to his prayers. And again and again, God constantly, often, very, very often in scriptures, answers it differently, answers our prayers differently. And so I want you to know that when you pray, Lord, here's my life, use it. Here's my ministry, bless it. I want you to know that this does not mean you're going to be the next Billy Graham. This does not mean you're going to have the version of success that you were originally planning for yourself. Many, many times, I suspect that perhaps for most of us, God answers our prayers, our prayers for His richness, He answers through our poverty. Our prayers for His strength, He answers through our weakness. Our prayers for His glory, He answers through our suffering. See, in Scripture, very, very often, God answers prayers in a mysterious, transcendent way. 
You see it in the prayers of Job, all the way to the prayers of Paul. And ultimately, we see this in the prayer of our Lord Jesus himself. For he prayed, remember, he prayed, Lord, take this cup from me, the cup of the cross. Take that away from me, but let your will be done. And how does God answer that prayer? Well, Jesus takes the whole cup of the cross. He takes the whole cross on himself and he suffers and dies horribly. So did God answer that prayer? Well, you tell me. Because what we know is Jesus died on the cross and then he lives once more. He took the whole cup so that through him, when he died and resurrected through him, we get the cup that is not judgment, we get the cup of salvation, we get the cup of grace, we get the cup of blessing, and we get the whole cup for us. God provides that cup through the cup of cross for Jesus Christ. So did God answer his prayers? God answered our prayers. And therefore we, who received such an answered prayer from God, we can order our lives and our ministry. We look ahead and make the best possible plans out of our prayers. We look around and we deeply connect with other believers so that we can go further faster. We look above in prayer, in faith, and surrender to God. We do all that and we, we offer up our lives to Him, hoping that it would be holy, acceptable, and pleasing and we offer it to Him because we know, we trust that just like what He did through our Lord Jesus, He can use what we offer and multiply it into a billion marvelous things. Let's pray and offer up ourselves to God. Our Father, You who provide this framework of creation around us. You who set eternity, you who, whose will and purposes and plans are far beyond us. Lord, we surrender to your will. You are the one in control and you are the one we entrust our lives to. We surrender to you, Lord. So Lord, we come to you asking that we would be able to offer up our lives, whatever measure of responsibility that you have given us. We pray that we may be found faithful stewards. We pray that we would be responsible servants. We pray that we would do our best, Father, to arrange and order our lives so that we may offer up a best sacrifice that we can make, a living sacrifice unto you. So, Lord, we thank you. We pray for our lives. Keep us safe from harm, from corruption, from temptation. Lord, we pray for our ministry. Help it be acceptable to you, to the Lord, to, Lord, to your people, Lord. We pray that we would be the best that we can be by your grace so that you may be glorified, for that is our heart's desire. Thank you, Father. We pray all this and trusting it to you, surrendering it to you, trusting that you're able to multiply it into a billion marvelous things. So Lord, we pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ, the one who took the cup of the cross 
for us. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to God's word today and worshiping with us. I pray that you be kept safe and that God will bless you.